Hey, if this is your first time listening, I strongly recommend going back to episode one, Where Warm Waters Halt, to listen to the story from the beginning. Okay, here's the show. Listen, forget about the lawsuits. Those are just more jerks. But I can understand why anybody would be upset about this. You know, there was a lot of time spent on this. This is the equivalent of somebody gives you a Rubik's Cube and puts it in your hand. And you spend the next six months with the Rubik's Cube. And then the guy comes and takes the Rubik's Cube away and says, oh, by the way, that was impossible. That's Dale Neitzel again, this time talking about the lawsuits that emerged in the immediate aftermath of the announcement that the treasure had been found. However, the most immediate and pressing suit, as well as the one that would ultimately force the finder out of hiding, came from treasure hunter Barbara Anderson. Before we get to Miss Anderson's story, we're going to spend some time with a man named Seth Menachem. Mr. Menachem is a psychotherapist And he's going to shed some light on a mental phenomenon called cognitive bias and how it affects, well, how it affects all of us. Welcome back to X Marks the Spot. You're listening to episode five, No Place for the Meek. So cognitive bias isn't necessarily all bad. We're all susceptible to it. It's a shortcut for our brains to be able to see the world through. I'm Seth Menachem, and I live in Los Angeles with my wife and two children, and I have a group therapy practice based out of Valley Village. Cognitive bias was first studied by Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky in the 1970s. Quite simply, it says that the way we see the world is biased because of our own subjective experiences. So cognitive bias could be a good thing. These shortcuts could help me stay safe, for example. If I am primed to be able to see danger very quickly and I need to protect myself, it's a way for me to be able to shortcut things in a very quick way so I'm able to do what I need to do to protect myself. Our brains are essentially set up for us to be able to survive. Now where we get into trouble is cognitive bias ends up shortcutting a lot of things that delete huge amounts of information because we are narrowed in on certain aspects of what we see. For example, we might take pieces of information that we really want to be true and put them together in ways that make sense even if they don't. You could make the argument that our brains are primed for that, that what we need to do is grab pieces of information in order to protect ourselves. The problem is when we are excited, when we want to impress someone, when we want to win something, when there's something for us to gain, we start to grab at pieces of information that confirm our already held beliefs. And in doing so, we end up leaving out pieces of information that could be really useful to us. So one of the problems of cognitive bias is we're not able to see our own flaws because they are only viewed through our own personal experiences. If I think I'm better than I am at a certain job, for example, and I get a bad review at work, I don't get a promotion, I get let go. My assumption is that there's a conspiracy against me because they don't see how great I am, because I'm unable to see myself through an objective experience. 
There are different kinds of cognitive bias, but essentially the only way to get over them is to have someone make you aware of them. Now the question is, can simply being aware of this cognitive bias change the way you behave? And Kahneman, who did the initial research, says no. His feeling is that we can never rise above our own instincts. We are limited by them. A really scary place for cognitive bias are people on the fringes who are so entrenched in this belief system that lies on the edges and they're only looking for information that supports these radical beliefs and they end up delusional. Barbara Anderson came relatively late to the search and quite by accident. By 2017, hundreds of thousands of people were trying to find the treasure chest, but Anderson was completely unaware. She instead spent her time doing her best to navigate a devastating personal loss that threatened to consume her. But, as fate would have it, she happened upon a television news story regarding Forrest and his treasure, and Miss Anderson was instantly hooked. Yeah, I started just reading the blogs and the scrapbooks. I actually kind of started backwards, and I had thought, if I were Forrest, did I really mean it that he didn't want it to be solved during his lifetime? And I thought, no, I think if this is his way of having fun with everybody and enjoying people enjoy themselves doing it, and I suspected that he wanted to help people nudge them along, and I also suspected that he might hide in the blogs. So I started reading the blogs, including the blog commentary, and uh, did that for many, many months, and uh, only bought the book after I thought I figured out the key word, and I went back and called the bookstore, and I found out that I bought the book starting in February 2018, and I was in New Mexico end of March 2018. And then I would see things in the blog commentary as I read, you know, I'd take Dale Neitzel's blog and I would read through everybody, not really taking notes or anything, just absorbing it all. And a couple things caught my eye and then a couple comments caught my eye. And then I realized, hey, wait a second, you've got to read him very carefully. How do you read? How do you fend speak? I had an idea of what it might be in terms of the key to unlocking the poem before I bought the books. And I remember getting the first one. Miss Anderson is referring to what many believe to be the key word. Some think there are two words, hidden in Forrest's book that serve as the key, or instruction, to unlocking the clues hidden in the poem. So there I was, I get the book, I'm all excited to read the book and see if I can figure out how to, you know, read it now. Like a, like a puzzle-cracking book. And then I put it down. I remember falling asleep. And then I kind of woke up and I thought, you know, shoot, did I just read this right? I went back to the section. And um, I won't tell you that at this point. And I was like, woohoo! <laughs> I was ready to go leave. And my mother thought I was nuts. I mean, <laughs> it was kind of funny. And I, don't, I didn't keep any of these emails. But I remember teasing Forrest before I had even gone, before I had even told them where I was going. My only communication with him prior to that was I told him, I think it was in 2017, and don't quote me because I don't have the email. I said, sorry, I'm writing from my law email, but I wanted to let you know that I went through a, a tragedy in my life, but your books have really kept me cheerful. And he responded like right away. 
And I said, you know, I'm enjoying looking up words and I'm enjoying from an English literature perspective. And he said, oh, yeah, that's going to help you a lot or something funny. Well, we hit it off right away. You know, we were both cracking up at each other. And I think if I remember right, I went silent for a long time. But then I'm pretty sure I teased slash taunted him after getting the book by referencing a person. And by that, I was telling him that I was on to him. And I won't say that at this point. I thought maybe that might get his attention and then had put it all together in my mind, at least some of it. Not, I hadn't fully solved. Um, I believe I think I fully solved it. But anyway, I, I went out there and I started teasing Forrest on the way from Am- the Amtrak station with pictures. You know, like, oh, here's where I'm going next, Forrest. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so it was a lot of fun. So then I hopped off the Amtrak. And I, and I had a rental car that trip. And then I uh, drove around and took funny pictures. And uh, the rest of the story I have to save for a later date. Don't worry. That wasn't the end of the interview. Not by a long shot. Barb continued to devour Forrest's book, The Thrill of the Chase. Nothing got by her. From the pictures, to the typeface, to the double omega symbol at the very end. Why did some pages have drawings while others had photographs? Why the omega at the end? Why not zeta or lambda or beta? Would Forrest be so obvious as to use omega at the end of his book? Barb wanted to know. And her persistence paid off. I met him once. He invited me to meet him at that Collected Works bookstore. And um, I was surprised that he actually finally responded because at this point I had sent him a million emails and he knew dang well where I was. And then I get there and um, first he's sitting in the, in the inside of the store. And we go to the back, we went outside and it was, you know, nobody was around. He's talking to me and he says, you know, where are you? And I look at him like, I said, what do you mean where, I'm, where am I at? Like, you, you haven't seen my million emails? You know, type thing. And I thought it was odd, too, because I knew he didn't give private hits. And so I told him. And his response was, nope, never heard of it. (laughs) I just about died. I looked at him, and I had already seen clues at the site by this point. I just looked at him and, like, stared at him. Like, what? You know, I I didn't say anything. I didn't give him a hard time. I didn't call him any names or anything. I just looked at him like, what are you talking about? And I thought, this guy is a prankster, he's a hoax, he's a con artist. I mean, I thought every malicious thing, like, what is he doing? You know, because I had already seen what I had seen. And, you know, had spent a long time there and several trips at this point. And I thought, what the heck is going on? I dropped out of the chase then until a scrapbook called Baby It's Cold Outside. Okay, here's the deal with the scrapbooks that Barb is talking about. As you know by this point, Forrest Fenn led quite an exciting and eclectic life, which was well-documented along the way. From time to time, Forrest would use his friend Dale Neitzel's blog to share scrapbooks. Basically, collections of photographs and musings on pretty much anything that was on his mind. If you're interested in digging more into this, you can find a link to all the Forrest Fenn scrapbooks in the show notes of this episode. There are over 200 of them all high-resolution PDFs. It's actually a pretty amazing collection. And in that, if you look at it, there's a comment that says something like, he says, you know, baby, it's cold outside is a song. And um, then it talks about, you know, how it's maybe not PC to sing that song anymore. 
And then he uses the word arrested. Let me try to unpack this briefly. The scrapbook Barb is talking about here is number 195 from December 5th, 2018. At the bottom of the page, there's a video of Barry Manilow and Suzanne Summers singing a duet of the song Baby It's Cold Outside. Barry Manilow, of course, is belting out the song in his chest voice. <laughs> Random, I know. Above the video, there's a paragraph with some ramblings about how Suzanne Summers wants to make a political statement with the song and how she's hoping it will get picked up and played nationally. It goes on to read that Summers had joked that the, quote, movement, end quote, may have her arrested. And that's it. That's the end of the post. And it's signed simply F for Forrest. Does this blog post have the slightest connection in any imaginable way to the treasure hunt? Or is this just one of hundreds of digital journal entries from an 80-year-old man that happened to be published on Dale Neitzel's blog? I'm sure you can guess where Barbara Anderson comes down on this one. And then he uses the word arrested. Well, I had been through a false arrest case, as you probably know, and I just went crazy. <laughs> so, like, okay, you know, come back into the chase, Barbie, <laughs> type thing. Because that's the only way he would really ever communicate with me, is through publicly visible scrapbooks. So that's how I came back in. As I'm sure you've noticed, throughout the interview, Miss Anderson was very evasive about any aspect of herself including the state in which she believed the treasure was hidden. More X marks the spot after the break. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Eventually, our conversation turned to the finder, Jack Stoof, and the news that the treasure chest had been found. As it turned out, Barbara Anderson was out looking for the treasure at the exact moment the news broke. Well, I panicked, and I thought, you know, is this another prank? And what the hell just happened? There's nobody around and all that stuff. First, I drove to uh, where close to where I was and uh, dead quiet. Then I drove further down. I went all the way to Santa Fe, called Forrest. He, you know, oh, no, no, this is legitimate. This is legitimate. And I said, well, I'm going to call you in the morning. Can I come see you? What's going on? I think somebody hacked me. No, 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 blah, blah, blah. I w- th- then I drove back to my spot, which is very remote. And then I got up at the crack of dawn to see what was going on. And um, I filmed it and nothing visible seemed to have been altered and uh, came back. And then I was there for like two weeks or so before I finally just came home. And now we know our finder is the questionable, which I suspected all along. So a couple of things in that section. One, she reveals that she was in New Mexico. And two, 
we can discern that she's referring to a geological feature that she feels guarded the hiding spot that she figured out in her solve. Something heavy that she could not move by herself. But to her great confusion, she was at her spot when the announcement came that the treasure had been found. Only she didn't see anyone, let alone the large number of people she claims it would have taken to move the feature, as she calls it. So what gives? That's when things got interesting for Barbara, for Forrest, and for the entire search community in the aftermath of the discovery. Well, first I thought he meant it was found but not retrieved. So I actually went, if you read the finder as a spoof on me, which is where I'm starting or or where I've started to see, which is what I'm discussing with the court, uh, and, and my experience with him being a prankster, when he said it was found, I actually had emailed him and said, is this blank? You know, like, is this blank? And of course he never responds. But then he did the announcement. And I thought, oh my God, I finally nailed it. And um, I started to move it after I heard the announcement. Like, okay, this is another prank. He's pulling the rug from underneath me. And I started moving it and I couldn't fully move it. So that's when I had to leave. I just couldn't physically, you know, move the thing. And I thought, okay, well, he must, he must be sincere. I'll have to wait and see what happened. And now we know if it weren't for the fact that the quote-unquote finder's attorney didn't tell me that it was sitting in a vault in Santa Fe, I'd probably be out there right now with 10 people moving the thing. At first, the finder made it clear to Forrest Fenn that he wished to remain anonymous and that, likewise, the location of the treasure would also be kept under wraps. To put it mildly, that didn't go over well in the treasure hunt community in general, and with Barbara Anderson in particular. And that was all in New Mexico. And then I had the media calling me because I filed the suit while I was out there. And then I finally just came back to Chicago probably two weeks later or so. So Ms. Anderson filed a lawsuit alleging an unnamed defendant hacked her personal email accounts, stole her solve, and made off with the treasure right under her nose. No matter that she couldn't explain how it happened with her being within sight of the supposed location of the treasure on the very day it was found, somehow, some way, she was denied a treasure that was rightfully hers. Not long after, she had occasion to correspond with Mr. Fenn over email. He wrote me and tried to, you know, justify this finder nonsense. Well, of course he was trying to provoke me. And so I shoot him out because there's a point that you all don't know about that is blatant and I chewed him out and I said are you seriously denying blah 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 and of course he never responds and then the next thing he says is publicly he says interest in Cody is growing well he was responding to my email and Cody is not Cody Wyoming now let's wait just a second Miss Anderson is planting a flag here a preemptive strike to discount some additional information that would if true completely destroy her solve If Cody is not the small town frequented by Forrest Fenn that he wrote about in his book, then what did he mean when announced that interest was growing in Cody? Was he pointing us in a direction, highlighting a favorite old haunt of his near his beloved Yellowstone? Or was he, in actuality, secretly letting Barbara know that her solve was correct? When pressed for what Forrest meant by growing interest in Cody, I can't tell you. But then, without any further pressing, 
and that's typical. The, the way the way Forrest would respond to me, he would never privately respond. He would post something, and so his way of responding to my email was to post it publicly. Well, of course, then everybody who was searching in Wyoming thought he was talking about Cody, Wyoming. No, Cody is the buffalo from the book. So, what does Cody symbolize? That's the question. As it turns out, it was Cody, Wyoming that Forrest was speaking about. The last big piece of information that would come from Forrest Fenn himself was that the treasure had been found in the state of Wyoming. Delighting searchers that had Wyoming as their solve and destroying all the others who didn't. All except for one. That's right. Barb Anderson would like a word. Remember, Forrest gives himself liberty to lie 15% of the time. And likewise, if you read The Finder as being an actor, he's probably given himself latitude to lie 85% of the time. So, take it all with a grain of salt. And so the Wyoming was a joke. He said, we agreed to say it was in Wyoming. If you go back and read it, The Finder and I, we agreed, I mean, I'm not reading the quote as we talk, but go back and reread the quote. The quote was, we agreed to say it was in Wyoming. Look at it from a prankster's perspective with him giggling. And only a few short months after it was announced that the treasure was found and that it was found in the state of Wyoming, Forrest Fenn died. Oh, I was just devastated. I was like, I could I was like comatose for like two days and um, probably didn't get out of my pajamas for like two days. I was just dying. He and I had so much fun. There's so many funny stories to tell from it. All my furniture is sitting in, in storage lockers in Santa Fe because I thought I was finally going to solve the thing and, and hang out with Forrest and have some fun. And so all my belongings are sitting in Santa Fe. And so now I'm, and, and back in September, I was here at my parents' home up in northern Michigan. Although Miss Anderson claims that she took the death of Forrest Fenn hard, she seems convinced that the old trickster may still have a card to play. When we conducted the interview, it was more than three months after the death of Mr. Fenn. But according to her... Well, he was ending it. He was ending it so that people can't... He's not done telling the story. So don't, don't, don't think he's purposely... This is not the end of the chase. In my opinion, you're waiting for the story to be told. The real story. And for the magician, remember he's the magician. The magician's going to show you his magic trick. But you don't know if there's a book coming out. You don't know if something's coming out, you know, and that he wants everybody held in suspense. You know, there's all kinds of things. I mean, we're going to look back on ourselves and say, ah, that's the answer, but we just don't know yet. But his story is definitely going to come out. In fact, if if you look at his recent post-find discussions, he says, I'll defer to the finder to tell you. Well, now we have this spoof writer saying, I won't tell you. But I think Forrest also said, it's eventually going to come out. We'll get into this a bit more in a later episode, but for clarity, the spoof writer that Barbara Anderson is referring to here is the finder, Jack Stoof. Before going to med school, Mr. Stoof worked as a journalist, and one of his jobs at the time was writing satire pieces for The Onion. Well, now if we have the finder who won't tell you, and Forrest says it's eventually going to come out, well, who's going to tell it? How is it going to come out? Well, that's another little riddle. So it's either going to come out from Forrest or it's going to come out from the person who actually solved the poem and not Jack the spoof writer. 
So it's either going to come out for me or it's going to come out for four. <laughs> Barbara discussed an exchange she claims to have had years prior with Forrest Venn himself, hiding in plain sight, but disguised as an anonymous blogger on the site Mysterious Writings. She was hinting around that she had solved the poem and would soon be putting boots on the ground to go and retrieve it. Well, I have to wait because years ago I had told Forrest that he was hiding in a character. He always hid in characters, as I told you about how I started to figure this out. And I met him in, I want to say I came visible under my blog name Willow Tree. And he would tease me to come out and chit-chat because it really was not something I was interested in doing since I had already been to the spot and I didn't want to tell people you know, my ideas so that they'd come following me. So anyway, in one of the conversations, because he encouraged it, he said something about who's going to tell the story. And and this was under his hidden blog name. And I said, well, I think Forrest should tell the story first. And he, he really liked that, as opposed to like the person who actually retrieved it. And I feel like I promised it to him to wait. So that's why I suspect that the story is being told. She's convinced that by lobbing those truth bombs into the blogosphere, it smoked Forrest Fenn out of his hole. Miss Anderson claims there was an agreement between friends that Barb would retrieve the chest full of gold, but would allow Forrest to tell the story about where and how it was found. She wouldn't steal his thunder under any circumstances, not to this day. Not even after the supposed death of Fenn himself. So, if every cloud has a silver lining, perhaps it's this. At the very least, Barbara has kept her word and is honoring her friend. I still think Forrest has my back. He's just telling a story. Just like he pulled the rug on me with the back in August of 2018. Never heard of it. And then back I was four months later, he lured me back in, yeah. But like I said, I'm not telling anybody anything at this point. I don't go back on my word, even if I'm a little confused <laughs> and mad, mad on occasion. You know, sometimes I'm mad too, very mad. But, you know, I still made that promise a long time ago and I'm going to wait a bit longer and hope that something fun is going to unravel. More X marks the spot and the fifth clue in the poem after the break. In 1844, the still small and relatively unfocused Republic of the United States of America elected its 11th president, James K. Polk. A native of North Carolina, Polk was born into a life of privilege by virtue of his father's wealth, earned through farming and land surveying. While James was still young, the Polk family moved across the Appalachians to the frontier state of Tennessee. It was there that young James would begin to shape his political beliefs that would, half a century later, quite literally reshape America itself. As president, James K. Polk would deliver on the American promise of manifest destiny by overseeing the largest territorial expansion in U.S. history. Over a million square miles of new land, including Texas, California, in the Oregon Territory. Amazingly, and true to his word, Polk left office in March of 1849, 
after serving a single term and having no desire to run for re-election. And why would he? He accomplished what he set out to do. Texas became a state. A treaty with England granted the United States the Oregon Territory south of the 49th parallel. And a two-year war with Mexico saw American forces take the prizes of the New Mexico Territory as well as California. And with regard to California, when the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo was signed on February 2nd, 1848, which formally transferred sovereignty of the region to the United States, no one knew that just nine days earlier, on January 24th, 1848, gold was discovered at Sutter's Mill in the Sierra Nevada mountains of the newly acquired territory. A discovery that would lead to a massive migration west and, thanks to Polk, the American territories now reached from sea to shining sea. Who can blame the guy for dropping the mic and retiring to his farm in Tennessee? Here's a million square miles of awesome land and one of the richest gold strikes in human history. You're welcome, America. However, Polk and the largest land grab in U.S. history aside, it's a distant cousin of the 11th president that concerns us and our story. A young man from Virginia, who, like so many other young men in the first half of the 19th century, ventured west to find their fortune in the abundance of the North American interior. Hunting, trapping, and serving as guide for intrepid American families making their way along the dangerous and unpredictable Oregon Trail. This cousin of President Polk, at 19 years old, was exploring the Yellowstone River with a trapping party when they were attacked by a band of Blackfoot Indians. The trapping party scattered, and the young man, in his escape, traveled deep into what would later become Yellowstone National Park. His name was Joseph Meek. The fifth clue in Forrest Fenn's poem reads, From there, it's no place for the meek. And one of the more popular solves for that clue has to do with the trapper Joseph Meek and his discovery of the Mammoth Hot Springs, located in extreme northwest Wyoming, just a few miles from the Montana border in Yellowstone National Park. Now, to officially credit Meek with discovering the Mammoth Hot Springs is spurious. What was meant back then was obviously that he was the first white man to write down that he stumbled upon them by accident. And they are certainly a beautiful natural feature of the landscape. In essence, what young Joseph Meek came upon in his retreat from marauding Indians was an incredible series of rock terraces made of travertine, a sedimentary rock that typically forms around mineral hot springs. They are truly a stunning sight to behold and are a major attraction at Yellowstone Park. This is how Meek described the surrounding landscape in his journal. This whole country beyond was smoking with the vapor from boiling springs and burning with gases issuing from small craters, each of which was emitting a sharp whistling sound. As far as the Fen treasure hunting community was concerned, this location checked a few very important boxes. First, the spring is fed by the nearby Norris Geyser, another supposed Joseph Meek, quote, discovery. The water runs from the geyser along a shallow fault line until it reaches Mammoth Hot Springs. By then, the water has cooled from near boiling hot to around 80 degrees Fahrenheit. You see where I'm going with this? 
Is this where warm waters halt? Many seem to think so. Also, with our current clue, the use of the word meek seems to play a major factor. Forrest, according to his most ardent fans, didn't use a single word by accident. Meek matters. But how? Out of all the searchers we spoke to for this podcast, not a single one had a workable solve for no place for the meek. In fact, most solvers either skipped this clue or found a way to fit an extemporaneous discovery into their existing solve. Here's Dale Neitzel. Well, I didn't, you know, I did not have a complete solve. I never had a complete solve, never once. Part of what I always believed was you had to go there. You had to be there to see some of these things, to find out for yourself what some of these things could be. I had some ideas of maybe what he was talking about, but, you know, I, I wasn't convinced that this was correct, but I felt if I got out there and started walking around, I could figure this out. And we have this from John Morgan. So then there's this stuff about, from there it's no place for the meek. But in this canyon, there's uh, a wreckage of an old car. And I was like, this is amazing. It's either, you know, no place for the meek, these people, you know, whoever was driving this fell off the side. And I was like, this, this is it. Barbara Anderson does have a solve for this, but, of course... Um, I won't tell you that at this point. There were several creative solves for No Place for the Meek that exist in the chat rooms and blogs that go beyond the legacy of Joseph Meek and the Mammoth Hot Springs. One in particular involves the Meek and Sons Fly Fishing Reels Company out of Kentucky, no matter that they went out of business almost 20 years before Forrest was born. Forrest loved fly fishing, a company named Meek, made fly fishing equipment at some time in history. Eureka! Let's get boots on the ground. But once all the dust had settled from the announcement that the treasure had been found, and the new obsession for the Fen Army became figuring out what the finder had figured out and how, many searchers came to the conclusion that no place for the meek simply meant that you'd have to find a little courage at this point in the search and cross a river. More specifically, the Madison River at Nine Mile Hole, which would correspond with earlier solves for the first few clues. Again, that's purely speculation based on the most current understanding of serious searchers who A, believe that Jack Stoof found the treasure in Wyoming and has released some cryptic clues of his own, and B, are desperate to find the hiding place to quiet a constant, lingering obsession with the chase. The solve about having to wade across a river is buttressed by the clues that follow, and will be explored in future episodes, as well as by Forrest's near lifelong commitment to fly fishing and what could be considered his expertise in fording various bodies of water in the hopes of finding the perfect fishing hole. We need to remember that Forrest always said to keep it simple, to think like a child. We also need to realize that he wasn't an accomplished poet and still felt the need to write his poem in rhymed verse so we can assume there was a lot of working backwards to serve his rhyme scheme. For example, if he found it necessary to mention a creek later in the stanza, he'd better figure out the rhyme ahead of time. Maybe he wanted to write, now you need to be brave, but then his rhyming dictionary didn't come up with anything except antonyms. Weak, bleak, meek. Ah, meek, he thought. Instead of needing to be brave, 
I can write that you can't be meek. Or something along those lines. Or maybe I just really want that to be true. And I'm missing something very obvious. On the next episode, we dig deep into the sixth clue. The end is ever drawing nigh. Which may, in fact, be Forrest's masterpiece when it comes to a well-crafted clue. We'll also check in with the Santa Fe Director of Tourism and we'll offer you a foil to Barbara Anderson. I tell them, you don't have 300 people who solved this. There's one person who solved it. And I'm letting you know I'm the guy that solved it, but we just need to join together to find out how Forrest gets screwed over and I get screwed over. That's Dave Woodard. And has he got a story to tell? Next time on X Marks the Spot. X Marks the Spot, The Legend of Forrest Fenn, is a Cavalry Audio production. We're produced by Brandon Morgan and Jason Seagraves. Our executive producers are Dana Brunetti and Keegan Rosenberger. Our associate producer is Margot Carmichael. Zach McNeese is our sound editor, mixer, and post-production supervisor. Music by Blue Dot Sessions and Soundstripe, with additional original music by Bruce Whitkin. I'm Brandon Morgan, your writer and narrator. Thanks for listening.